Pollination is one of the most crucial cogs in the fruit and crop production machine. Yet, there are many warnings that bee populations are dwindling. This week, we're joined by a beekeeper to unravel how vital this pollinator is for our food system. Now, over the past few weeks here on Farmers Inside Track, we've explained why it's crucial to irrigate with massive efficiency, selecting the correct irrigation equipment, how to irrigate efficiently with limited resources, and this week, Mia's Borchards, Netifum Technical Advisor in the Western Cape, explains how farmers can run an efficient irrigation operation and tips on maintenance. Margaret Mabulani has been carrying on the legacy of farming in her family and today she joins us as our hashtag soil sister. She is one of the amazing women selected for the Corteva Woman Agripreneur 2022 program. And our farmer tip of the week comes from Sumitra Naidu, founder of Green Bin Essay, a food waste management company. This is Farmers Inside Track, supported by Food from Zanzi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. Hey, and welcome to episode 143 of Farmers Inside Track. I'm your host, Dawn Numdu. Now, pollination is one of the most crucial aspects when it comes to fruit and crop management. Now, pollination is one of the most crucial aspects when it comes to fruit and crop production. Yet, there are many warnings that the bee populations are dwindling globally. Now, Nicole Ludolf chats to a beekeeper, Perdi Motala, founder of the Farmyard Honey Factory. She unravels how vital this pollinator is for our food system. Thank you so much, Dawn. Perdi, what type of bees are the best to use as pollinators in South Africa? In South Africa, only honeybees, that is Apis mellifera, are used for commercial pollination. Two of those subspecies are recognized in South Africa, and that is the Apis mellifera scutellata, which occur in the summer rainfall areas, and then the Apis mellifera capensis, or commonly known as the Cape honeybee, which occur in winter rainfall areas. In terms of distribution, the capensis more or less follows the geographic regions of the sort of Fainbos area, which would stretch from the southwestern part of the country all the way across eastwards towards about Port Elizabeth. There's a region which I think mostly we term it as like a, a hybrid region where there's a sort of hybridization or mix of the scutellata and the capensis bees which is a thin belt, and then above that belt is the Enscatolata region, everything to the north of that belt. Those areas are very distinct areas that cannot be crossed. So the crossing of breeds across those borders can lead to immense problems, and I'm sure that you've heard of a capensis problem that occur in the north of the country. What happens is that the capensis bee has the propensity to act as a parasite to the Scatolata colonies, and eventually they die out. So those areas are very, very distinct. In South Africa, we're not allowed to move bees across those borders. Tell us more about the structure of bee colonies. There are three sort of castes in a bee colony. You would have the queen, and there's usually only one queen per colony, who is the reproductive caste of the colony. And she's obviously largely responsible for the continuance of the colony. She is the one who will mate with a series of drones. And quite interestingly, she retains that sperm for her reproductive lifetime. So she never, ever has to mate again. 
And then the drones are the male bees. Their sole responsibility is to mate with virgin queens. That is absolutely all they do. They are pretty much not of any other use. And then the female worker bees are the ones that we see more often, the ones flying around when we're walking in the garden or in the park or something like that. Those are specifically the older bees, the foragers. That's your non-reproductive caste. They generally don't lay eggs. And within that caste of the female workers, there's also a sort of a hierarchical system, which we call division of labor. So whatever needs to be done inside the hive gets divided into wherever you fall within your maturity. So your younger bees would, for example, be responsible for feeding the brood. Some other bees would be responsible for cleaning the hive and cleaning the cells, etc. As they mature, there will be other bees responsible for guarding the hive. And then your older bees will be responsible for foraging. And quite interestingly, their function in the hive is very closely related to the anatomical or biological maturity and their physiological maturity, if I could say that. Responsibilities in the hive change accordingly. In terms of management of the hive, quite often you will find when, for example, the colony has had a loss of a large part of their workforce, and that would be the older bees who go out and forage, the younger ones, they now need to take over that responsibility. And then physiologically and anatomically, they mature in that way, so they are able to do that. Inside the hive, there's also a very specific, they're incredibly highly organized, almost pedantic insects. And they have a very, very high level of social organization, which entails sharing of the nest where they all live together, as we know bees do. What we call cooperative brood care, in which the whole colony shares the responsibility of sharing for the offspring. In this case, the queen lays the eggs and the rest of the colony takes care of the brood, etc. So they have that kind of system in their structure. And then what we call overlapping generations, where the offspring assist the parents in carrying out certain tasks and in looking after the brood. So for that reason, you will find in a, all things being equal, that in your brood nest, you'll have various stages of brood from day old eggs to older eggs, to larvae, to pupa, to cat cells, to emerging bees. And this is what makes them so successful in terms of succession is that they always have like a sausage machine. They always have bees churning out in different stages of development. And that is very, very important for their survival so that there are always younger bees who are going to take over the responsibility as they age of the older bees and so on and so on. Pollination is one of the most crucial cogs in the fruit and crop production machine. Yet there are many dire warnings of bee populations dwindling. What are some of the issues or barriers bee farmers face in terms of bee populations? One of the main things that result in loss of a colony, and when I say loss of a colony, I say this a little bit tongue in cheek, because when we're talking about loss of a colony in this context, what I'm really saying is loss of a colony to the commercial beekeeper or loss of a colony that we can use to pollinate, for example, but not necessarily loss of a colony to the wild. Because very often when the bees swarm off from your beehive, which is a managed colony, it could very easily go into a nest itself into an oak tree or something like that. So the colony is not necessarily lost in that they've died out or they've disappeared off the face of the earth, but they're just really lost to the commercial side. 
of beekeeping. So you've lost a colony for pollination, for example. In general, in the Western Cape particularly, one of the biggest fears that we have and one of the things that really cause great losses to many, many, many beekeepers are felt fires. And more often than not are things that are beyond our control. There are many beekeepers that I know who haven't escaped something like that. I myself have had an incident where I lost about 100 swarms in a fire in the mountain. And I just couldn't get there quick enough because once it starts, rages are so furiously and rapid. And sometimes one needs to consider how safe it is for you to actually get in to try and remove the hives. But it's not always possible. And we hope that before the fire actually gets to the hive, that the bees would swarm off somewhere into the wild. But then there are also a myriad of other external factors, the major of which includes, for example, lack of foraging, which is a huge problem, particularly in the Western Cape. If I could quote perhaps the recent drought we'd had two seasons ago, which obviously has a domino effect when there's no flowers coming, there's no nectar, there's no food for the bees, etc. And then climate change as a whole is also a problem which affects foraging. And I could mention things like deforestation, removal of vegetation, as I mentioned earlier, felt fires, which are a particular challenge, would then just remove a large area of foraging for the bees. So that is a very huge problem that has been recognized in the Western Cape by several government industries or government institutions as well. Diseases are a big problem. And if you manage your hives well, you can limit that to a degree. Sometimes, obviously, certain things are not avoidable, like American fowlbird disease, for example. It's not easy to prevent your bees from getting American fowlbird disease. Like we've had the COVID recently and one person infects the other. And this is exactly how it happens with American fowlbird, where bees forage where they want. That's not something that we can control. So if they forage in an area where other bees are foraging that actually are infected with American fowlbird, it's very easy for them to pick up and bring that back into the hive and then infect the rest of the colony. And then varroa infestation is also a huge problem for beekeepers, but it all revolves around management. And so a lot of these things can be limited to a large degree. And then I could mention things like your European fowl brood, chalk brood, and the list goes on. And then, of course, pests. Ants are a very big problem. Managing ants and controlling them and making sure you check your hives to make sure that there aren't any ants that are trying to colonize the hive as well. And that would obviously cause your colony eventually to swarm off. Wax moth is also a huge problem and that I personally feel is a management problem. So if you manage your colonies correctly and make sure that they, they're always a strong colony, then they pretty much will manage the wax moth on their own. And so too, things like small hive beetles, they will manage on their own. The honey badger is a huge problem in certain areas in the country. I farm in, in areas where we don't have honey badger problems, but even that too is a management issue. So if you make sure that you position your hives in such a way that the badger cannot get to the hive, then you pretty much can avoid having damage as a result of honey badgers. But one of the hugest problems is vandalism. Vandalism and theft is actually nightmarish proportions and comes with enormous costs to beekeepers. That is an ongoing thing and beekeepers are always trying to invent new systems and new types of equipment and all sorts of things to try and secure their hives. Chemical spraying, I think that's something that's been in the news quite often. Chemical sprayers obviously also cause huge losses in colonies. 
What are the requirements of bee colonies used in pollination? Your most important would be your colonized pollination unit. But more importantly, a good pollination unit would comprise of a Langstroth hives. There are obviously many different types of hives that are used in various places in Africa and around the world, but the most the commonly used hive for commercial purposes is the Langstroth type hive. And the reason for it being that it's mobile, so it's ideal for pollination. So a good pollination unit would comprise of a Langstroth type hive with nine or 10 removable frames. A removable specifically because that makes it easy to manipulate and to monitor. Those frames also need to be wired. The reason why you would want to do that is because remember that your pollination unit is a mobile unit. So you're going to be transporting somewhere and those combs can get pretty heavy, particularly if they're honey laden. The wiring provides a support that stabilizes the comb onto the frame so that it doesn't during transport and perhaps you driving on rocky, shaky roads. That could obviously cause your comb to break off and fall into the hive and cause drowning and loss of your queen during transportation. The hive should be able to be easily sealed because remember that you're transporting it. So en route, what you don't want is for bees to get out and perhaps on the way stopping for petrol or stopping at a robot and somebody gets stung. So it's important to make sure that the bees don't, what we say, leak out of the hive. It must be easy to be sealed. Have a rotational system whereby you make sure at a certain during your management here, you check all your hives. If they're broken or damaged or whatever, then you'd want to either replace it or fix it to make sure that during transportation, your bees are actually sealed safely inside and people around you are safe. Every person who owns a hive must be registered with the Department of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development. Then they give you a registration number. And the reason for that is is very simple, is that in the case, for example, of the outbreak of American fireball disease, you actually really want to know where all your hives are in the country. So that registration number must be clearly marked on your hive. For any reason, if the owner of a hive needs to be tracked, then it's obviously easy to track them. And then for a pollination unit, the honey chamber on top of your brood box, commonly called a super, is not essential, but sometimes you would need to put a super on. For example, if your colony is so large that it would obviously be detrimental because it would cause overcrowding in the hive and then it would cause swarming the last thing you want is for them to swarm off during pollination. So then you put a super on to create more space, as an example. Or a smaller colony, for example, that has adequate space and you've managed your brood box adequately to allow for the queen to lay and then to go about their business in pollination. So then you wouldn't need a super chamber. It's not essential, but consideration should be given for that, whether you actually need to install a honey chamber or not. The Western Cape Beekeepers Association, for example, has a set of standards that act as a guideline for pollination service providers to actually use to guide them in terms of how to prepare their colony before pollination. If you adhere to guidelines of that nature, then you pretty much would have good pollination units. What is your advice for aspiring beekeepers? What should they know before they go into beekeeping? You have to know your bee biology, a little bit of the physiology, how it works, and the social structure within the colony. I don't know how we can manage bees without that knowledge. 
because the crux of your management of your diagnosis of diseases and illnesses or problems inside the colony, the crux lies with knowledge of the bee biology and the social structure of the colony. I would advise anybody who wants to do beekeeping or has started as a newbie or even who has been beekeeping for a while, if you don't know your bee biology, go and do it now. Thanks, Nicole. And great having you on Farmers Inside Track. Beekeeper Perdi Motala, founder of the Farmyard Honey Factory. She's based in the Western Cape in Wolseley. We now switch things up from pollination and beekeeping to irrigation. Now, over the past few weeks on this podcast, We've explained how crucial it is to irrigate with massive efficiency. This week, Mias Borchitz, Netifum Technical Advisor in the Western Cape, explains how farmers can run an efficient irrigation operation and tips on maintenance. This is really vital, especially if you're a new farmer. Mias, welcome to Farmers Inside Track. It's great to have you with us. Um, I usually like to ask my guests to tell us a little bit about themselves, where their journey started in agriculture, and I'm so happy to actually have you here in our studio. Thank you very much, Dawn. It's very nice to be here. Yeah, my journey started way back. Grew up on a farm, worked in agriculture for most of my life. Currently, I'm at Netafim, a technical advisor for them. Been in the role for the last six years. Now, Mias, as I understand it, maintenance is crucial for all types of irrigation systems, and there are various factors that impact the success of an irrigation system. Could we start with a rundown of what farmers should know and understand from day one to ensure an efficient irrigation operation and maintenance? I think we should first define what an efficient irrigation and maintenance operation is. So if we look at the day and age we live in, I believe we are forced to be efficient with the rising prices of electricity, water, fuel. We need to understand that we have to minimize our wastage as far as possible to survive. An efficient irrigation system is one that can provide the exact amount of water and nutrients to where exactly it is needed. This must also be done by the lowest possible running cost. That said, it's easier said than done, and therefore we need to understand what our system limitations are. An efficient maintenance operation is one that provides the longest possible lifespan to our system. It is procedures and equipment that is implemented to protect our irrigation system against blockages and breakages giving us a peace of mind to know our system is protected. Farmers should know that there is a lot of expertise out there and that it is crucial to connect with the right people to find the correct irrigation and maintenance system for their needs. Every farm and farmer is unique and custom systems will be needed. It is important to prepare for unexpected and to follow the required maintenance regimes. I think that's definitely one of the things that I've picked up in my conversations with your colleagues as well is that no farm is the same. And you'll definitely have to sort of accommodate depending on what commodity you farm with, but also more specifically about different types of things, your soil type. There's so many elements to it. So it's really great that you're giving us that context. Thanks for that. Now, are there specific guidelines for farmers when it comes to maintaining their irrigation system? Yes, there's definitely very specific guidelines for every type of system that will optimize the irrigation system's longevity. But these will be different depending on the different aspects that needs to be considered like the type of irrigation system, if it's a drip system, a micro-sprinkler system, a sprinkler system, or a pivot irrigation system. Then also the water quality is a huge thing that needs to be considered. Are we irrigating from a river, a dam, or a boil? And then also the irrigation scheduling that is followed. Are we irrigating every day, 
or only on some days. These are all questions that need to be taken into account. But yes, most of these guidelines can be found from the supplying manufacturer or from the irrigation designer. These guidelines will include guidelines for continuous, preventative and corrective maintenance. I also believe it's important to know that in the dynamic era we live in, it is found that new products are continuously being developed to help in the preservation of equipment. It's highly recommended to speak to a professional before investing in equipment that might not work for you. One must ask your irrigation designer to explain the different maintenance aspects of a possible irrigation solution they have to offer, as some solutions can be very costly. Now, this is why I love that you guys are here with me, because you're literally breaking it down for us. And I think it's so important for farmers to also take note of that. Now, what is the breakdown for the different irrigation systems used on a farm? Could you list them briefly and also one vital point for each system? So the main components for irrigation system are the pumps, filters, valves, flow meters, fertigation units, pipes, and then lastly the emitters. Now all of these components have their own checks and maintenance that is required, but I will focus just on the emitter port for this question. The four types of emitter systems are drip irrigation, micro irrigation, sprinklers and pivots. If we look at drip irrigation, the emitter flow passages can be very small. And for this reason, the main thing one must consider is the quality of the irrigation water. Water can be tested and sent for laboratory tests to confirm if the biological and mineral content is within specifications. These results will also help to determine how intensive the maintenance plan should be. Then, with microsprinklers, our flow passages a bit bigger and water quality plays less of a role, but we now have different issues that need to be addressed. For instance, making sure sprinklers are positioned correctly and upright, as the distribution of a sprinkler will not be efficient if a sprinkler is skewed, out of place, or if there are weeds growing tall next to it. As we then move over to sprinklers, we usually have much bigger flow paths and would not be worried about clogging if a correct filtration is used. But as with micro sprinklers, the biggest problem is sprinklers that is not standing straight. Sprinklers also have more moving components that needs to be in good working condition for efficient and effective irrigation. Lastly, if we look at pivots, they are very big, complex pieces of engineering, which have many moving parts like motors, gearboxes, wheels and bearings, which all require very specific maintenance. The complexity of a pivot is one of the things that must be remembered, as this requires additional skills and tools to maintain. Thanks so much for that breakdown, Mias. Now, what are some of the shortfalls when farmers don't adhere to these maintenance protocols? Well, I would say the biggest problem is that the farmers don't implement a proper fixed maintenance program and don't follow maintenance checklists, which makes it very hard to continuously keep the system in tip-top condition, and that we don't always understand the need for maintenance. Therefore, we don't always want to spend the money on it. Then I also see that farm workers doing the maintenance is very often not trained properly to execute their jobs and that management don't always check the quality of their work, which leads to maintenance not being done or at least not as it should be done. This would then lead to an insufficient system, not allowing the farmer to use his irrigation system as it was intended in the first place, which means they will have much more headaches trying to get the right amount of water on the right place, which will also lead to more breakages and will cause downtimes, which can lead to loss of yield and income. Now, this is obviously a lot to take in, especially if you're a new farmer. If you could leave our listener with one piece of advice before we let you go, 
for me, the maintenance aspect and also in terms of saving costs in the end, what would you leave them with? For one, it's very important to investigate all your options before you start. One must then also familiarize oneself with one's own irrigation system. Make notes of pressures and flow rates and get a feeling for your equipment. It is sometimes very easy to identify a possible problem by just looking, hearing and feeling. If it sounds or looks different than the day before, it could very possibly be an indication of a problem about to occur. Then we must also remember that there's a lot of professionals out there that would be very happy to share their knowledge or help where they can. So please don't hesitate to get in touch with them. I would like to conclude by saying it is the best to have maintenance in place from the get-going as it can be very hard to implement at the later stage. So please make sure you talk it through from the beginning and that you have enough information to make the right decisions when you need to. Thank you so much for joining us. I definitely know a lot more about, you know, maintenance of irrigation systems and operation itself. It's really great to have you with us and everything of the best with the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us, Mias Borchards, Netifum Technical Advisor in the Western Cape. Next up, Margaret Mabulane has been carrying on the legacy of farming in her family. And today she joins us as our hashtag soil sister. She is one of the amazing women selected for the Corteva Woman Agripreneur 2022 program. This is a year-long blended development program at the Gordon Institute of Business Science Entrepreneurship Development Academy. Margaret, your journey started more than 10 years ago. Talk us through your time in the industry. What sparked the interest to really carry on your family's farming legacy? I've been in the farming industry since 2010. We started our farming from the ground by debushing the area from debushing. We started like from the beginning. And then I gained more interest in moldy into farming. But this was motivated by my mother. She was the one who started the farming thing. And then I joined uh, in 2010. When we started debushing, my mother started it as a family business. She passed away in 2020 and then I gained more interest into farming. And then in 2014, I went to Twan University of Technology to study crop science. Meanwhile, running the farm, I was moving from Pretoria to Limpopo at the same time. The farm is based in Limpopo in a village called Yelen Skral. And currently we have 100 hectares where we plowing cotton on 40 hectares and vegetables on one and a half hectare. I do it with passion and love. I wake up and sleep. It's farming. I'm too connected to it. When I talk about it, when I do something on it, I become so spiritual about it. I become well connected with it. Sometimes I take it as, oh, it was my spiritual calling, maybe, to be a farmer, to be in farming. We're farming cotton on 40 hectares, dry land, and then we're farming vegetables, chilies, and spinach and bedroot on one and a half hectare, which we are doing crop rotation of, of those three vegetables. Now in life, we all face hardships. I say this all the time. But you know, farmer to farmer challenges really does differ. Tell us about some of the challenges that you faced and also some of the factors that motivate you to really keep on keeping on and just pushing through all the challenges. Formally registered in 2017, where we started taking the farm into a commercial way. Our most challenges was operational costs. And the main challenge currently at irrigation system on our side, cotton side, as we are farming on dry land. Our main goal is to see ourselves producing good quality products, high yield, 
but we can't reach those goals due to lack of irrigation system as we are planting on dry land. Now farmers do so much for their communities. Tell us about how your farm is giving back to your community. We created a non-profit organization that is called Chichadi Foundation, dedicating it to my late mother. Her name was Chichadi. She was so passionate about assisting people, wanting people to get more educated. And then on the non-profit company, that's where we have a program called Give a Life. Give a Life, it's a program where we assist young farmers who are starting into the industry of farming to teach them more about crop production, about farming and agribusiness. Because most of them, they are not aware that there's agribusiness where you have to comply and do things formal record keeping and other things into the farming business. We are also developing vegetable gardens for disability centers, for youth who are interested into farming and want to do it their backyards. We're also taking students and people who want to learn more. Currently, we have five working at our vegetable garden for experience. And then before we let you go, do you have any advice, especially for women entering the farming arena? We must be passionate about farming because without being passionate, you won't survive in farming. It's very difficult. You must take it also as a daily business. Make it your baby so that it can grow. Farming is not a child's play. You need to be able to learn every day. As it's evolving every day, as we have, uh, there's a different types of farming. In the, in, there's, there's different um, careers in farming or types of farming in the industry like hydroponics, farming in greenhouse tunnels. You must be able to learn more into farming when you enter into it. You must be open-minded so that you can take some reviews and check where you're going. Always follow your business plan and check up where you are so that you can go back and check, okay, this is where I am. This is where I'm going. If you are passionate about it, it becomes a fun thing to do. It becomes your lifestyle. Because without a farmer, there's no life. There's a myth saying, wake up every day and thank a farmer. Thank you so much for joining us here this week's Soil Sister, Margaret Mabulane. She's one of the dynamic women selected for the Koteva Woman Agripreneur 2022 program. Agriculture is not just about farming. It's about caring, and that's an ideal worth preserving. Right through all departments and companies within the VKB Group, we know that farming is not just a job. It's a way of life. Let VKB help you in all aspects of the food value chain by efficiently reducing costs and optimizing value. Follow VKB on Facebook or vkb.co.za to find out how VKB can help you. VKB, for the love of the land. This is one of my favorite parts, guys, our farmer tip of the week. Now, we all know that the high price of fertilizer is crippling farmers across Mzanzi. And this week, we hear from Sumitra Naidu, the founder of Greenburn SA, a food waste management company who talks about the alternatives for farmers to tap into. We also do need to think about how we do things differently. How do we reduce our costing? How do we reduce our impact on climate? How do we actually produce more organic fruits and vegetables? Whatever we're farming, how do we actually produce that more organically? And what we'd like to do eventually is to produce enough compost so we can supply all of these farms. Is this not something that you can look at doing? The clients that we approach, like the big commercial players, 
a lot of them say that they're sending all of this food waste off to pig farmers. Whereas you can also get into the space and collect it and produce your own organic compost. Would that be something that you could look at moving towards reducing the amount of chemicals that you're putting onto your farms? Thank you so much for joining us here on Farmers Inside Track. Sumitra Naidu, founder of Green Bin SA, a food waste management company. And that, of course, brings us to the end of another exciting episode. Remember, if you loved it, please rate it and share it with your friends family members and fellow farmers. Also do check out our weekly session on Twitter spaces called hashtag gather to grow. We talk about all things farming. So do join us. That's Wednesday evenings from 6 to 7 p.m. Central African time. From me, Dawn Numdu, Nicole Ludolf and our producer Megan van der Fent and the rest of the Food from Zanzi team. Have a great week, guys. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring, and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food for Mzanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.